and I just know we'll have a good time. And I just know we'll have a good time. Welcome to The Original Doll with James Rodriguez. I am your host on The Original Doll. We go behind the scenes and talk about the stories behind our iconic artists and their iconic moments in music. And at the same time, we help out charity. For more information, visit theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout out to my Patreon supporters. You all rock. If you'd like to join my community and keep this show going, go to theoriginaldoll.com. And as with every and all things with The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it. We're going to get on to the show and we're going to be talking about the importance of this moment, Janet Jackson's design of a decade and how it impacted many projects around that time. We're going to get right to the show. My name is James Rodriguez. This is the Original Doll Iconography. We're going to rewind back to March 23rd, 1991. Many publications were reporting that Janet Jackson was going to sign with Virgin Records. She would therefore be leaving her home for her complete career, A&M Records, which she released four albums with A&M during the 80s. Now, something to keep in mind is the deal itself had a confidentiality clause, which meant no one was really able to talk about the details. Over the years, more and more information was leaked about this contract. Now, at the time, industry insiders estimated the value of this contract to be about 32 to $35 million. And this is what's crazy, including $17 million upfront and $6 million per album for three titles. And it was reported that that was the most lucrative recording contract to date. In talking about Janet Jackson signing to Virgin, Chairman Richard Branson said of the Janet Jackson deal, quote unquote, a Rembrandt rarely becomes available. When it does, there are so many people who are determined to get it. I was determined. All of our people worldwide are greatly honored and proud to be working with Janet. Now, this is something that I want to point out to the Janet Jackson family and even Janet Jackson fans is it was reported back in March of 1991 that A&M Records was going to be releasing a greatest hits with Janet Jackson's music. That's right. This was 1991. Janet Jackson's first compilation for greatest hits songs would not be for another four years. More about that in a second. Now, this is where record label Changing Hands comes into play. In 1989, Janet Jackson had released Rhythm Nation, 1814. Polygram bought A&M Records for $460 million. Now, what's interesting is the president of Polygram International, which became the parent of A&M, Alan Levy, stated that in the SEC filing, Janet Jackson owed A&M Records one new album and that it was not deceiving investors about the label's valuation, because at the time of the valuation, it included Janet Jackson and future projects. Levy ultimately told publications that A&M at the time was worth more than what Polygram paid for it, so it was a great investment. Now, Billboard magazine at the time had reported that A&M Records recently 
sealed a deal with Janet Jackson's iconic collaborating duo, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Ultimately, the deal would give them a brand new record label called Perspective Label. This comes into play soon. And the first album that was going to be released under this arrangement was The Sounds of Blackness. And at the time, it was assumed that Jam and Lewis would ultimately be releasing eight different albums in 1991. Now, just one week after it was announced that Janet Jackson had signed with Virgin Records, her manager and her lawyer, Trudy Green and Don Passman, stated that the superstar's new deal with Virgin Records was not the $32 to $35 million claimed the week before, that in fact, it was over $50 million. Now, Virgin Records was asked by so many publications, what is true, what is not? But because of that confidentiality clause, they can neither confirm nor deny it. Now, at the time, Michael Jackson was re-upping his contract with Sony Music. People were comparing both of those contracts, and in fact, they were two completely different things. Michael Jackson's would include more multi-tier parts. Janet Jackson's was specific to a recording contract, and Janet Jackson's signing to Virgin was with Virgin having zero output from Janet already, whereas Sony had already had Michael Jackson's back catalog. Now, fast forwarding to 1995, it was being announced that Janet Jackson was going to be releasing a greatest hits collection called Design of a Decade, 1986 to 1996, and it was through A&M. Now, what was interesting, many people said, wait, but Janet Jackson was with Virgin Records. How was this possible? Well, I was able to go through so many different articles, whether it was New York Times, LA Times, Billboard Magazine, Radio Magazines, shout out to my Patreon patrons, because of your kind, generous donations, I'm able to purchase these magazines and publications. Now, Design of a Decade would feature material from Janet Jackson's Control album and Rhythm Nation, as well as a song from the Janet album, That's the Way Love Goes. In addition, there would be two new songs, and this is important. But at the time, Design of a Decade, they were going to be releasing it on cassette, on vinyl, and CD, in addition to home video and Laserdisc. Let me ask you, does anyone have that Laserdisc? Let me know. In addition, they would be releasing two new songs from that album, Runaway and 24 Play. Now, you may wonder, wait a minute, what happened with Janet Jackson's Virgin contract? Well, remember that clause that I said? where she would be allowed to receive a large amount of money and, at that point, leave that contract? Well, more on that in a bit. Now, for A&M Records' part, they really wanted to make this a huge success, bringing Janet back in the mix for this. They decided that they would have a multi-million dollar worldwide marketing plan. This would be all sorts of TV ads, radio ads, it would be print ads with Jet, Essence, Rolling Stone, and so many others. Now, what they really wanted to do that was different, and many of you have seen my videos where I've traveled the world honoring Janet Jackson, and you see that Janet Jackson has had select singles marketed and released in different countries. In doing so, A&M this time around said that they wanted to focus on her international success. Now, outside of the United States, the album would be released on October 2nd. In addition, there would be four different versions of this album, depending on where you are in the world. There would be three that had distinctly different covers. Many of you ask me, James, why were there different covers? And here's why. 
They wanted to make sure that the fan bases in different territories and regions received something a little bit different. In addition, these albums were tailored to those specific regions, and I'll explain that in a second. The international release and the Japanese versions of Design of a Decade would feature two additional songs, The Best Things in Life Are Free and Whoops Now. The Australian version of Design of a Decade would include the Frankie Knuckles, David Morales mix of The Best Things in Life Are Free, which was a huge radio hit in Australia. And they did the same thing with Japan. The Japanese release would include the CJ Macintosh mix, which was a huge hit there. So they were tailoring these albums to the different territories. They said, we know you're looking for this. It's not just a greatest hits album. We're giving you new songs. In addition, the mixes on CD, on vinyl, on cassette that you don't have already. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Runaway and 24 Play in a second, but I wanted to continue talking about the importance of this contract and how Janet Jackson was able to go from A&M to Virgin to A&M again. As I stated, A&M was already planning on releasing a Greatest Hits compilation back in 1991, but A&M worked with Virgin Records and stated that they would put this project on hold so that Virgin could start working on what would be Janet Jackson's first album under the record label. And in turn, scratch your back, scratch my back, Janet Jackson was going to be able to be featured on The Best Things in Life Are Free, which was from A&M's affiliate label, Perspective Label, who was Jam and Lewis. That's right. So they were said, we're going to put ours on hold. You're going to release your album, Virgin. But in the meantime, we're going to be releasing something with Janet Jackson still under our label. And they did so. Now, I talked about the best things in life are free and how there was a huge holdup on the physical release. Now we know it was contractual obligations. It was stated by Billboard magazine that had the best things in life are free been physically released a week before its intended date, it would have shot right up the charts. Now, this is what's interesting. A&M said in addition to working with Virgin, they were able to not only license That's Way Love Goes, which is why many people say, James, why weren't more of Janet's singles from the Janet album on there? A&M Records had to license that song, That's the Way Love Goes. In addition, they were planning on keeping most of the versions to one disc. So A&M said, we're going to go ahead and put our A&M material on first before we start filling it up with Virgin Records. By doing so, by A&M releasing and licensing That's the Way Love Goes, this was truly able to be a design of a decade instead of just having songs through 1989's Rhythm Nation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those two new tracks that were on Design of a Decade. Can you feel it? I've seen the world been too many places. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those two new tracks that were on Design of a Decade, Runaway and 24 Play. Now, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis have talked over the years about the creation of these. This is what's amazing. We do know that both of the songs were created at the end of July, the beginning of August. Fun fact about Runaway is the track itself, the music track, that was actually an option for Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson to do a duet. Jimmy Jam talked about this, stating as he was working on different tracks for Janet Jackson, 
Janet had said, do you have any tracks that we could send to my brother Michael to create a duet? Jimmy Jam played a few different tracks for Janet. Janet chose the backing track for what would be Scream and what would be Runaway. In addition, she said, I know that Michael will pick Scream. That sound, that boom, that is what he's going to be into. Janet said she selfishly wanted the Runaway track because it was so different. So she still presented both of those to Michael for a duet possibility. Scream came from it. The Runaway track became Runaway. Now, over the years, Jimmy Jam has said, Runaway, it's so many different things. It could be about running away from a lover. It could be about running through the world and being with the fans and connecting with people worldwide. Now, countering Runaway was 24 Play. As you've seen with my videos online or with these episodes, so many great facts we find out about these artists. Many times, a lot of these publications are hard to find the physical copies of. So I've been going on the different online websites to purchase those so that we can make sure we're honoring these artists because they've had so many achievements. The way I've been able to do that is by the Patreon community. You all rock. For as little as a dollar a month, you're donating so that I can keep supplying us with information, with great facts for so many great artists. In addition, if you want to purchase any of the physical merchandise we have, you can do so on theoriginaldoll.com. And you'll find as the months go on, we're actually refurbishing so many of these great products. By that, I mean, have you ever seen something at a thrift store where the vinyl of your favorite artist, maybe it has some ink on it or an old sticker. Maybe the sticker wasn't the original sticker on there. What we've been able to do is fix those, try to bring them back to the quality that these artists deserve. So you can check out a lot of that content, a lot of that product on the originaldoll.com. But I want to ask you this, of everything you have in your own collection, what is the thing that you value the most? What is your most pride possession for your favorite artists? Let me know in the comments and tell friends about this. If you have friends that are in any of these great communities, let them know about the original doll with James Rodriguez. Now back to the show. Can you feel it? 24 play. Over the years, Jimmy Jam has likened the track to The Quiet Storm, Some Days Tonight, and Anytime Any Plays from the Janet album. Now, what's truly amazing about this is there were two different, well, there were multiple versions of 24 play released. Some have an additional verse, some don't. But this is what's amazing. Jimmy Jam had stated that in this song, they did not abide by verse, chorus, verse, chorus. That this, things don't get repeated. He said he wanted to make it like an experience of basically love making for 24 hours, starting in the morning, ending at the night. From there, Jimmy Jam has talked about it over the years, stating that with that light being ignited between Jam and Lewis and Janet, they wanted to make more music. However, they had to wait because Janet Jackson was once again looking at all the offers for a recording contract. We're going to fast forward to January of 1996. It was reported that Janet Jackson was expected to sign a four-album contract today worth an estimated $80 million. Now, at the time, many people were saying, wait, this is just like different deals that Madonna and Michael Jackson have recently made. However, 
Theirs were six album deals that included joint ventures with film and other boutique labels underneath them. Janet's new deal would cover four different albums with new material for a Greatest Hits compilation. This is what's amazing. Over the years, we've talked about the importance of owning your masters. Under this new contract, Janet Jackson would ultimately get the masters back. She would get ownership of the masters seven years after the contract ends. In addition, Virgin wanted to once again push Janet Jackson on the international markets. Now you may say, James, wait, once again, why did Janet get to renew these contracts? What was that sort of thing? Because of that clause where she was able to basically go, I'm good. You sold the label. I can now move to whomever I want to move to. But with this new contract, that clause would not be in there. Smart on the record company's part. Now, if we rewind back, Janet Jackson released studio album-wise, just the 90s, only two studio albums, Janet in 93 and The Velvet Rope in 97. When you look at Janet Jackson's chart success in many countries, 90s were filled with Janet Jackson, having only released two studio albums. Now, I want to talk about that international success. Oftentimes, many people say, oh, Janet Jackson, she's not an international artist. She's not worldwide. But that's not true. The facts are, Janet is a global icon. Traveling to all those different countries and seeing the different Janet Jackson songs that have charted, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to pull one country, and I just took the UK. The UK has such a huge prevalence in many U.S. artists' international success. So I wanted to pull that specifically for this. Now let's go to the U.K. Back in 1994, they would finally create the official charts U.K. R&B hip-hop songs and albums charts. In doing so, Janet Jackson, her first single that was eligible to be on that chart, charted. It debuted at number two. When Virgin said they really wanted to push Janet Jackson on the international market, they did. From 1994 all the way through the end of Janet's Virgin contract with the 20YO album, Janet Jackson had 18 songs chart on the UK R&B singles charts. All but one peaked within the top 20. In addition, Janet Jackson would have five number one songs on the UK R&B hip-hop singles charts during that time. So I wanted to point out the importance of this contract. We've talked over the years about how so many different recording contracts for so many different artists have different clauses in there. But Janet Jackson's really created a ripple through the entire music industry. In addition, she was able to shop different record deals out there. And so, for those who kept asking me, James, why did it go from A&M to Virgin to A&M to Virgin? I don't understand it. Hopefully now you get it. But as we honor Janet Jackson in so many different ways, I want you to think of this way. It's easy to say, okay, Janet Jackson has sold X amount of tens of millions of copies worldwide, this, this, that, clump it together, Grammy winner, everything. But each of these moments deserve their own shine. That's why my videos on Instagram, if you go to it, it's about that specific moment. I can say when Love Will Never Do Without You started climbing the charts, went to number four, Janet Jackson had another huge hit on her hands. 
And then, of course, people on uh, the different socials say, but it went number one. But it's not about that. It's about these moments that she was the first, that she did that. Clumping it together minimizes her complete success. Janet Jackson not only had success with sales, but she also had success with tours, with publishing, and with business. So when you look back on this time, look at all those achievements individually. And look at how many times her name was in the news because she accomplished another thing. So stop putting everything together and just saying, this is why. This is all, you know, put together in a matter of 60 seconds. It's unfair to her legacy. So go back through my videos and look at those different points in her career where she did it. She was the first in so many different things. And now I ask you this. Going back through Design of a Decade, which of those songs from the version in your country do you think you listen to the most? And when you're done with this, go buy the album, go stream it, watch the videos, watch the videos legally, (laughs) get it on Apple Music, YouTube. Take a look at it and let me know. My name is James Rodriguez. Thank you so much for joining me on this as we celebrate and honor Janet Jackson's legacy. Because after all, she's the blueprint. I'll see you on the flip side. And now my interview about Britney Spears' Walk On By, featuring our returning guest, Steve Lunt, who worked at Jive Records as Britney Spears' A&R. Enjoy the show. And as with everything and all things connected to the original doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it. On with the show. Every time you walk on by. All right. So can you talk a little bit about who produced it, the songwriters? Who produced it, the songwriters? And was this included in the chunk of oops songs that made it on the album was this done after was this created after the album was released that sort of thing um no i after uh after we'd finished the the baby one more time album you know we basically instructed the the swedish team a cheer on to really start working on the next album straight away so that we could go from one album to the next as soon as physically possible and this is one of the songs that was recorded so I think that um, it was produced by Pear and David, or as you like to refer to him as, Pear and David. Um, so, uh, and it was written by by Jorgen, <laughs> written by Jorgen Ellefson. And I don't know if, if Pear and David were involved in the writing. I haven't got the credits in front of me, but but definitely Jorgen, who also wrote sometimes. They're all part of the Cheer On crew, um, and they tended to work a lot together. Pear, David, and Jorgen. Yeah, it was a really good song. And I just, it didn't, I don't believe it made any of the, the album uh, sequences. But again, in the Jive way of doing things, if you've got a good song, it doesn't go to waste. And so it would be a, a perfect quality B-side. A lot of companies put like really shit B-sides on their records in those days. They just put sort of like, you know, glorified demos or something. We had songs that maybe could have been hits by other artists as our B-sides, because that's how strong the catalogue was with, with many of our artists, thanks to the quality of the, uh, the cheer on 
group, and this is one of those cases. And what I thought was interesting is as we've been kind of unpackaging these songs and, and seeing how it's kind of cool to hear this chunk of songs was made during this time, then it went this, because then you could kind of hear how the vocal production evolved, how Britney evolved vocally, because she went from 15-year-old girl, 16-year-old girl, 17, like her voice is changing in general during during this whole time, just like any human being. But I've also loved going back through and checking out the background vocalists because I always find I'm like, oh, like I know you liked Nikki G. Like the, these, you know, uh, you had KNS that loved Jenny Carr. Like so many people have like their their favorites, but also when you hear it, you go, that's a, such a unique sound because some of these artists were able to kind of add their vocals onto these songs and give it a little something different. Now with this, it was Jeanette Olsen and Anders von Hofstein, which is somebody who has popped up on different, even Backstreet Boys songs and things like that. So when you're looking at this, the song about, you know, I'm not the only feeling lonely every time you walk on by, how important was it still to have songs on the album for Britney as a, 18 year old and sometimes 17 when she was recording some of these but how important is it to have songs for the teen audience about puppy love and things like that is that something that you said we definitely need to make sure we kind of keep some of those in the project you know what i mean like for that that target yeah. market um again it wasn't a conscious decision by by myself or anyone else at, at jive in america you know to say oh we got to keep this teen it was it was I mean, that's who she was, and I think that's what the writers wrote for. So if they were doing Walk On By, it would be like, to me, that's kind of similar to Sometimes, but just not a not a hit. But it's a, it's a very similar song to Sometimes in many ways. So, And I think writers, that's how you, as a professional writer writing for people, that's what you tend to do. Most writers, professional writers, tend to write for what they've already heard from an artist and try to replicate that, you know, somewhat. Not many artists go into it and not many writers go into it saying, okay, I want to take this artist to a different level. So I'm going to write this because they know that the odds are against the record company saying, oh yeah, I see your vision. You know, they're not, they just, they have their own vision. So as a safety measure, most writers, professional writers don't do that. And in this case, I think, you know, the, uh, the person who might've been pushing the envelope more than others would have been Max Martin out of the, Sheeran group, but even he came up with with "Oops, I Did It Again," which was kind of like "Baby One More Time 2.0," if you like, you know. Mm -hmm. But it still took it to a different level. But it was very similar, and I think the rest of the squad in Sheeran and Sweden were doing the same thing. So I don't think it was um, revolutionary as a song. I did get so many questions about because Max Martin, when she was whether she was recording overseas or here in the states. I did get a lot of people asking about how did that work? Britney Spears is out promoting, you know, Baby and, you know, Crazy and, and the different tours and everything. How did you have to juggle then going, okay, these three producers sent me something. We need to make sure if she's going to be in France or Sweden, we need, you know what I mean? Like at what point while you're juggling these artists and from this point on, Britney was doing a lot of recording for the next album while she was touring the previous album, which became very much a thing. And people are like, why? It's like, well, if you look at the time frame, by the time she got done with the last promo for Baby, 
it was a matter of weeks before she did her first, you know, televised oops. So was it tougher this time around trying to get the recording sessions in when now she's out promoting the previous album? You know what I mean? How did that play into this? Absolutely. You know, I mean, the bigger the artist, the harder the scheduling is because there's so many demands and uh, requirements from that artist. So um, in this case, yeah, we had a hugely successful, iconic album, I believe, with Baby One More Time. Mm -hmm. And then we were, you know, tasked with trying to recreate that success with a second album in order to extend her career. So she's not just a one his album artist. So the you know the writers were were given the task of writing straight from day one as soon as as soon as we'd finished the album writing wise and production wise, uh, writers were given the the task of 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 writing new songs for the next album. And all the writers, all the professional writers all over the world are sending in songs now, you know, wanting to be on the next Britney album. So mm-hmm. it was an ongoing uh, process. So recording was a very selective thing. We had to really focus on where and with whom, uh, you know, which songs she was going to record in the middle of a hectic touring and promotion schedule that was still ongoing with Baby One More Time. Something I wanted to talk about with this leading into kind of that Oops album is there were so many people that were like, oh, I was this person and I helped, you know, come up with the concepts for this song or concepts for that song. And I pitched it to Max Martin and it could be somebody who was like, I delivered a paper to Britney one day. My question and for clearing up any misinformation is with regards to the Swedish songs, how much of the Swedish songs were done before Britney even got into the studio to record it? Were the lyrics, everything all locked and loaded? Or did she do some and then she would come back three months later to finish the rest of the song? How close were a lot of these songs to complete before she walked in to add her vocals? Um, they were complete. The, the The Swedish recordings were very much a done deal by the time she walked in. And Britney had complete faith in the crew that was over there as did we. Um, and, you know, obviously every now and again, there's a, you know, a, a line here or there that wants to be rewritten or something, but basically these songs were complete. And with regards to the second album, you know, the, I mean, and even on the first album that the tracks were recorded, like there was, it was, it was a, a complete, you know, um, as it, as it was for the Backstreet Boys when they walked in, it wasn't like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they doing in that in that Swedish group they were so professional and so efficient and uh, and so on point with what Jive Records was trying to to achieve that there was very little questioning to be done I mean it's an A&R person's dream I mean I you know I stepped into when I walked into a Jive as an A&R person because having to work with uh, you know with Max Martin and the Swedish crew was it was relaxing is the only word I can describe. And relaxing is not an adjective that you normally uh, uh, apply to being an A&R person. When it came to the Swedish crew, it was, I felt confident and relaxed. Going through this and looking at what ultimately would become the Oops album, and everyone, we will be talking about the Oops album, because we talked about pretty much track by track for the next several albums. But 
it was very interesting how the a bulk of the people that worked on whether it was b-sides or you know songs on the album from baby carried over to the oops album to your point if you already had that synergy and you could you know trust them then let's go for the next one so that's why it seems like it was super seamless so then but let me ask you this though looking at these songs and how britney had b-sides do you ever go back and go yeah we not only did we have great albums but also these b-sides they were some pretty pretty amazing tracks in their own right for b-sides do you ever look back and go her b-sides were you know really great <laughs> well i do because mainly because from talking to you because you with your questions to me um you know it, it a lot of the time it makes me research some of the stuff that i'd totally forgotten about or you know hadn't really thought about for for decades and I go back and I listen to them. I say, "Shit, these are really, really good." And I can mm-hmm. understand why fans, um, in retrospect, look back on these things and say, "This should have been a single. This should have been on the album. This should have been this, that, and the other." I can totally, get, I totally get that. But at the time, you know, when you're doing it, it's uh, you know, you have to make decisions because you can't put 50 songs on an album. So certain songs have to have to be put by the wayside and it's a and you have to remember what the music business was like at the time when we were making these decisions but um but yeah i look back on these songs and i say i say you know some of these i mean these are b-sides and they should have been you know singles for other artists at the very least it's like you know and britney's performance on them is is stellar you know it's not like her performance was was turning them into b-sides you know because that's not true so Mm -hmm. yeah I think uh, I was a very lucky boy to be part of that. There you go. This has been this has been awesome. So everyone, have no fear. We're going to be going through more with Steve because, and if you haven't checked out our previous episodes, we go into almost every track from Baby. We go through the development phase and everything. Steve has been so kind to do this um, so that we clear up a lot of misinformation. And the funny thing is, Steve and I would still see stuff popping up online where somebody's like, oh, it was dead. You know, how would Steve know? It's like, well, he was in the studio when that other song was being recorded. Like, there's so many different things that I've loved. But I also think, to your point, it allows us, as now looking back as fans of the music, to revisit and listen and hear other things. Because as we talk about the evolution of Britney's voice, over these albums from young teen girl, you know, through 20 something year old woman, you can kind of see her deliverance, things she does, choices that were made. It was an evolution of a pop star and we were fortunate enough to see it. And you were part of that. So thank you for orchestrating all of this. This has been awesome. Steve, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I would like to say one thing though, um, that for anybody listening that uh, the James is the, is the ultimate source of accurate Britney information. He should be the, the, the primary place you go to, to to get accurate information. And I know that, you know, and I'm talking about worldwide, not just in America, because the information that I've given him is information that I've given to no one else. And, uh, and he keeps accurate records of everything and uh, to be respected. Thank you very much, James, for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The original doll.